At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we kick off the new year, we invite you to tune into our current series, The Forgotten Virtue, Learning to Love Again, where we'll discover how God defines love, Christ personifies love, and the Spirit empowers us to love one another. Together, we'll experience healing and hope in the love God designed for us, a love we carry through every season of life. All right, this morning, 1 John chapter 5. You know, uh, while I was in college, I spent one summer in Europe. I was part of a, a mission team over there, and we traveled around through Europe, and I was so excited about coming home, and we ended up in Prague. And so we were in Prague getting ready to jump on the plane, and we went through the marketplace. And I was so excited because in the downtown square, there was this marketplace. I was amazed that there was this vendor that was selling all of this Calvin Klein um, clothing. And I was so excited because I'm like, man, look at the prices of these things. They're dirt cheap. So I got a pair of Calvin Klein jeans and a Calvin Klein shirt for like 10 bucks. I was so excited. I'm like, I can't wait to get home and put all this on. And uh, I was so excited about that. So I get home and, and I put the shirt on and everything looks fine. I go to put the pants on and they just don't fit right. Like something about them is a little bit off. I, it almost felt like they put the front and the back and the back and the front. <laughs> it's hard to explain, but they just didn't fit right. And so I'm like, what's up with these jeans? And so I'm looking them over and they've got the Calvin Klein logo on them and all that, but they just didn't fit right. Well, then I wear that shirt for the day and I put it in the wash and when it comes back out, it started to come apart. At the, some of the seams started to come apart and the coloring inside of it started to fade. And in a moment I was like, what just happened? And I realized that I got duped. I realized that that was not authentic, genuine Calvin Klein clothing. Instead, it was some silly knockoff that they took the logo and impressed it on the clothing there. And I was so frustrated and I was so mad. I, could, I couldn't believe that I wasted my money on counterfeit things. Do you guys ever get frustrated like that? Yeah, we don't want to buy counterfeit things, especially when uh, we are like collectors. Any of you guys a collector of anything? Like if you are a collector of items or other things, you want to make sure they're authentic. You don't want to pay all the money for counterfeit things. Well, you know, there's uh, eBay has picked up on this and they've started issuing authenticity guarantees for some of their products. Like products that are most likely uh, to be knocked off or, or disingenuous. And so what they, what they now do is the seller of these items sends their items to eBay. eBay then goes through a list of checking to make sure that they're authentic. Then they give them their authentic uh, guarantee, uh, a seal of approval, and then they send it either out back to the seller or they send it to the buyer. And if they can't authenticate the product, then they send it back to the seller. And so is giving some, uh, those that are purchasing these items, giving them some, some assurance and giving them confidence that what they are purchasing is genuine and real. Well, I bring all this up this morning because I don't want to preach about e-commerce. I'm not preaching about how to, how to make money on the internet. Instead, I use that as an example to think about our Christian faith. Right? Wouldn't it be great if there was a way to be able to determine who was a, a real Christian and who wasn't? Like who was a genuine Christian and who was a fake Christian? Like who's authentic and who's not? Wouldn't that be great to be able to do that? Well, it's, it's, it's interesting that the scripture does give us tests that we can look and we can see the Bible says that when you are in Christ, you begin to produce fruit and, and you begin to look more like him and less like yourselves. But the challenge for us 
is not necessarily to look to see who's real and who's not. The question is, am I real or am I not? That's the most important question that we can ask ourselves. Do I have genuine faith? Do I, am I authentic Christian or have I been faking it? Like, have I been going through the motions? Have I believed some gospel that wasn't a full gospel? So today I want us to answer these questions. I want us as we end this series today to make sure that we are in the faith. How can we know that we have genuine faith? Because we want assurance. How many of you guys want assurance that you're saved? Right, I wanna know, right? I don't wanna be wasting my time. And so when we have assurance, that brings along with it confidence. If I am assured that I'm saved, then I can be confident as I live in this life. I don't have to worry, I don't have to fear, because if I'm really saved, the Bible promises that I have heaven waiting for me. This is an important question of assurance. And that's why I believe that First John, or John is writing First John, that he wants the church to understand authentic faith. He was aware too, as he was writing to the church uh, there, that many of them or some of them may not truly have faith. And so he writes 1 John, not only to this church, but to our church as well, giving us tests of our authentic faith. He actually lays out several tests of genuine faith. And I love that John MacArthur uh, years ago preached through 1 John. And as he did, he, he walks through and gives us nine tests for the Christian faith, to, to make sure that we are in the, the, the truth and that we are a genuine believer. And we don't have a whole lot of time to go through this, so I'm gonna read through this quickly. If you'd like this list, let me know and I'll send it to you. Maybe we'll have it on our Facebook page later today. But he says, first of all, we know that we have faith if we have fellowship with God. If we have an intimate relationship with God, we talked about this early in 1 John where he says that to know God, that we have the opportunity to know God, which means to have fellowship with God. Second, he says, if you're sensitive to sin, if sin bothers you, if you feel like you're walking this way and you're doing this and then you hear that voice inside of your head or inside of your heart saying, this is wrong, if we're sensitive to sin. He says, if we obey God's word, if we have a heart that has a disposition to look at God's word and say, I desire to do this, I desire to walk in his ways. Number four, if we reject the evil world, if we look at the world, not the people of the world, but the world's structure and the world's system that says life is all about you, if we reject that, then that's evidence of faith. He says, if we experience a decreased pattern of sin in our lives, that's a good test of genuine faith. Meaning that we don't still struggle with the same sins that we did eight years ago. That maybe the, the understanding of our sin has deepened and in some ways we're receiving and seeing victory over sin in our lives. Number six, if we love other Christians. Number seven, if we walk the walk and talk the talk. Number eight, if we have the ability to discern between what's true and what's false. And number nine, if we experience victory in the Christian walk, then those are true evidences of saving faith, genuine faith. Now, all of those might not be completely present in your life right now, but if you are moving towards all of them, then it's good assurance that you are 
saved. So what John does, and let me kind of pull back a little bit more because we kind of bulleted through that, but, but John basically gives us three building blocks through 1 John of, of our assurance and how it's built upon. First of all, he says that our faith, our faith begins to be built on truth. He says truth is foundational to our faith. That's, that means that we must be believing rightly. 1 John uh, chapter 2, verses 21 and, and 22 say this. John says, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. So what he's saying is truth, all truth is is founded in God himself and it's displayed best through the person of Jesus. So it's it's what we do with Jesus and is he the truth or is he not, that that becomes the foundation of our life. Then he says that that truth then is built upon love. That once we are in the truth, we then have the opportunity to not only experience the love of God, but we have the ability to love others. John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 says this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he, uh, whom he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. And then he goes on and he says, the third foundational piece to our faith is righteousness. We gotta keep these in the right order too because it begins in truth, it grows up in love and that leads to right living, doing the things that God says that we are to do, living in obedience to God's commands. So it begins with the truth level built up in love and then shows itself in righteousness. 1 John 1, 6 says, if we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So righteousness is actually practicing the truth. See, these three building blocks are the foundation of our assurance. And over the last several weeks, as we've been walking through this series, Forgotten Virtue, uh, Learning to Love Again, we've been focusing primarily upon the aspect of love. We haven't been looking, uh, even though it's been there, we haven't looked specifically at righteousness and truth but we've been looking at more specifically love. That's why if you've been tracking with us, you, you know that we haven't been going right directly through 1 John. We've been taking the passages that are specifically related to love. But today, what we're gonna see is the passage that we're gonna look at today weaves all these three back together and gives us a cohesive picture of what it means to have assurance in our salvation, assurance in our faith. The imagery we're going to see in the passage today that John gives us is this imagery, this family imagery. And he says that that something dramatic happens to those that are in Christ, that they receive a new birth. In essence, he's saying that, that you experience life in a new way. You experience true life because you were born again, a new experience. And so John is saying, and all the scripture is saying, there, there are only two categories of people. There are those that are born again, those that have experienced the new birth, and those that haven't. There's no in between. 
So each of us here today or those watching online know that there are only two categories. Either we are born again or we are not. And both both have uh, opportunities to them. One leads on a path to eternity with God and one leads to a path away from God where the wrath of God is there for all of eternity. And so what we're gonna see in this passage today is that the fact that this new birth makes you a child of God. This new birth makes you a child of God. And so it is possible for us to know that we have been born again. It is possible that we can know that we have authentic faith. And John's gonna give us, uh, over the next few minutes, he's gonna give us three ways that we can know that we truly have faith, that we have experienced this new birth. Look with me in uh, chapter five, verse one. John writes, anyone or everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves, loves whoever has been born of him. So in this very first passage, we, we see the, these two being woven together, that of truth and that of love. And truth produces love. And so first he says, everyone who believes that Jesus is, is the Christ has been born of God. So it entails this truth about Jesus is the beginning of this truth. Jesus is pointed to as the truth. We either believe that he is the truth or we reject him as the truth. But Jesus himself in John chapter 14, verse six, he makes this claim. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life that no one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus here in the Gospel of John makes this super exclusive and super uh, absolute claim that the only way that God can be known and accessed is through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the only way because Jesus is the one who came, came in flesh and suffered for the forgiveness of our sins so that sinful man can be made right with the holy God. I want you to understand that, that this idea, uh, this exclusive claim of Jesus, this absolute claim of Jesus doesn't sit well in our culture today. But you know what's shocking? is that as John is writing this way back then, it was just as controversial and just as shocking to that culture at that time too. To claim that there's only one way back to God, that there aren't many ways back to God, that is controversial, that is shocking. And even sometimes today, it seems super offensive. But what I want us to understand today is that not all roads lead to God. Though there are many people that say, oh, there's many, many paths you can, you can go to. And the problem with all these other religions is they get this whole thing wrong, is that they start here. They, they say that all other religions say this, all other faiths say this, is that I can reach God or I can attain God through living right or doing right or thinking in the proper way. So in essence, what they say is they, they start here on earth. And they say, because we're man and because we, we are created, that somehow we can attain God through living out a certain standard. Do you see the problem with that? 
is that salvation can't start from us because we're the wicked ones. We do evil, and so it's, there's no way that we can think right and we can do enough good things. Like I've even heard it said so many times that people in life, they, they believe that somehow there's this cosmic scale out there, that the God of the universe is, is weighing their good deeds and their bad deeds. And somehow in the end, if they end up doing more good than bad, then God will receive them into heaven. Have you guys ever heard anything like that? Like that's a lie from the pit of hell. You know why it is? Because how can you have assurance? Are you counting? Like, do you go throughout your day and say, well, today I did five more good things than I did bad? Well, no, we have no idea. So we go to our deathbed not knowing if I've done more good than I've done bad. Oh, how shocking. What makes Jesus different than, and, and, and Christianity different from any other faith out there, any other religious tradition is that it doesn't begin with us. It began with God. God came to us. Jesus came down to be with us and to bring us back up to the Father through his life and through his sacrifice and through his death. Jesus is completely different. He is the one that came for us to save us from our sins. He lived the life that we couldn't and he died the death that we deserve. So we see love came to us. And love gave of itself for our sake. But this passage reminds us, not only is, is Jesus exclusive and absolute, but look at how it says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is a child of God. So though this road to God is exclusively only through Jesus, the offer goes out to anybody. It's a universal offer. It's an offer that goes to you today. Everyone who believes in Jesus, who, who trusts in Jesus with their life can be a child of God. Anyone who believes, everyone who believes. We've got to unpack that for a minute because th that word believe can mean a lot of different things. Just as we've talked about in the series that love can mean a lot of different things. Right? To believe in Jesus is not the same question, or to ask the question, do you believe in Jesus, is not the same question as do you believe in aliens or do you believe in the Easter Bunny? It's not the same question. It's categorically a different question. The question is not asking also whether we believe Jesus existed or not. It's not the right thing. Do you, do you believe that Jesus was a real person? Do you believe that he was a good teacher? Do you believe that he was a healer? Do you believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead? You can believe all of those things, but that's not the question of what we're talking about here. Believing in Jesus is more than just wanting him to save you from your sin. Believing in Jesus is about putting our whole faith and trust in him, not only to save us from our sins, but to be the Lord of our lives, to, to trust in him fully. We've, maybe you've heard it, if you've been in church for a long time, you've, you've heard the story of the chair, right? Like, you know, if this chair over here, I can, I can believe, I can have knowledge that it's going to hold me up. 
Because, you know, past experience and all of that. I can see that it, it's pretty sturdy. I can come over and I can touch it. And I can do this to it. And I can do this to it. I can lift it up. I can do all of that. And I can, I can do all that. But that's not fully putting my faith in the chair. That's not trusting fully in the chair. It's not until I actually sit down in the chair that I give up control of my life. Hey, this is awesome. That I'm actually doing this kind of deal here, Right? Now I'm fully, I'm fully invested in the chair. I'm fully trusting in the chair. I'm not trusting in myself anymore because I'm not in control. I'm saying you are better, you are stronger, you are able. This is believing faith. Where we say, I can't do anything. I contribute nothing to my salvation. I can't be good enough. I can't be smart enough. And enough people can't like me in order for me to get into heaven and to be assured of salvation. The only way is to place my faith in Jesus. This is biblical faith. Have you done that? Have you come to the place of believing in Jesus? Because the invitation is there. Everyone who believes will be a child of God. You don't have to worry about your past. So many times I, I hear people that, that are contemplating faith in Jesus and they're like, yeah, but if you knew my past, like I gotta go back and I gotta fix those things before I can come to Jesus. No, that's another lie from the pit of hell. You don't have to go back and fix your past. Jesus wants to fix your past. Jesus wants to forgive you of your past. He wants, you, he wants to remove the shame. He wants to remove the pain. And he wants to give you life. You don't get right to come to Jesus. You just come to him. And you come to him with all of your junk. You come to him with all of your sin. And you just lay it at the foot of the cross. And you say, Jesus, this is how evil I am. This is how much I've rebelled against you. This is how many lives I've broken. These are lies that I've told. Bring it all to him. And that's what makes him so glorious. Because he says it's forgiven. It's forgiven. It's forgiven. It's forgiven. It's forgiven. It's all forgiven. Oh, to be a child of God. We can have assurance that we are a child of God by believing in Jesus. You are loved by God because you believe in the truth of God. Second, if you've been born of God, you love God's children. This is the second test. So if you've been born of God, you love God's children. I want to go back to, to verse 1 first of all, and then we'll get to two and three and explain it a little bit more. He says, for everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God and everyone who loves the father love, loves whoever has been born of him. So there's this connection here that once we believe in the truth of Jesus, then somehow the full power and presence of God that's living inside of us begins to allow us to have love for God and allows us to have love for others. So believing in the truth produces love. Another way of saying this verse is, is that if you believe in Jesus Christ, God gave you a new birth, and that new birth puts you in the family of God, which is going to make you love the father of the family. And if you love the father of the family, you're going to love the family. That means we love one another, those that are in the faith. We, we can't even hope to love our enemies yet until we begin to love our family well. 
This idea has been the main theme of this whole series, that if we know God and we love God, we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, that this love of God overflows. But loving one another has seemed to be super challenging in these days. To seeing and, and, and to watching and hearing about how our brothers and sisters in Christ aren't getting along. It's, it's indicative of the whole world. It seems as though uh, the world has found its way into the church. The, what we see happening in culture has influenced us in the church, and the church is adopting some of these very dangerous habits. You're like, well, what are these habits? Well, we're not loving each other well. Now, I'm not saying, that's not a blanket statement, but I say, generally, generally speaking, like we're, we're tested in these times to love one another well. And you say, well, how do we, uh, what, what, what's happening? Well, the problem is, is that many times we know the world is coming in when we find ourselves easily offended, right? When, when you're going through life and, and a brother or sister in Christ uh, says something that you, di- that you disagree with and you get easily offended, that's a sign that you are allowing the world to step in. When we stop listening to our brothers, when we stop hearing uh, what they're saying and we assume that we have a perfectly clear picture and that they are in error. Another way is when we, we stopped assuming that we're imperfect. When we stop thinking, hey, like I'm, not, I'm no longer imperfect, I've got, I've got it all together. Like everywhere I go, I'm very, very consistent. And, and if nothing has shown us in this past year and a half or so is that everyone is incons- inconsistently inconsistent, right? You come up with this rule that gets sent out in some kind of order or whatever, and you're like, okay, I get that, but it's all, everything's inconsistent. And so for us to, to look, it's easy to poke at other people's inconsistencies, but we live our lives thinking that we're perfect and we've got all of everything figured out. And we assume that others are imperfect, but we are perfect. A great challenge of loving our brothers in these days is that we've stopped taking time to walk in our brother's shoes. Doing the hard work of trying to see the different perspective. Or even coming to the place of saying something like, you're not going to change my mind. To a brother. I'm not talking about the world. I'm not, I'm not talking about all of that. I'm talking about a brother or a sister in Christ when we're having a conversation with them and it gets to the point of you shutting down and you saying, you're not going to change my mind. If we can't love our brothers, how in the world are we ever going to love those that are lost? If we can't love our brothers, we don't know God. And if we don't know God, then we are not saved. We are not his children. Verses two and three in in, uh, this passage, John presses in. He says this. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Now, look at how, how he does this here. Remember, he says that the truth, we're founded in truth that bubbles up in love, and then what happens? We obey. 
We, we live righteous life. Love expresses itself through righteousness. Truth, love, and righteousness working all together so that we have assurance that we are children of God. Do you have a desire in your heart to obey the commands of God? And immediately, in the immediate context of this passage, he's talking about the relationship with brothers and sisters, right? Do we seek forgiveness and do we uh, ask for forgiveness and do we apologize when we offend? Do we seek reconciliation? Do we point people to the proper places of truth? Especially when we watch our brothers or sisters begin to go awry or they begin to go off course, are we lovingly pursuing them, asking them to come back? But even in this passage, there's even more a general sense of as a child of God, our heart's desire is to live out the commands of God. When the truth of God is exposed to us through God's word, we desire to live that way. When there is no desire to live that way, then there is no knowing God and there is no faith. Living in the ways of God brings us life. While living outside of the ways of God always brings shame, always brings pain. So the question is, testing our hearts, how do we feel towards the commands of God? Do you look at the commands of God and see them as burdensome? of something that you have to do, something that's oppressing you from your freedom? Or do you see the commands of God as a uniquely beautiful design that when you live in it, breathes life? Like, like, have you ever thought about it? Maybe when you were younger, maybe you're still here today and you, you see that God's desire is that you remain sexually pure until you're married. Like, that's a pretty high standard, right? And it's in God's word. It's God's word that says you're designed to have one spouse, one partner in your life so the two of you can become one flesh. That's God's design. And so many times people hear things like that and they're like, oh, oh, no, I don't want that. Like, I can't live like that. That's why would God be so mean that he would not want me to experience intimacy over and over and over again with multiple people? That's a, that's a mean God to do that. No, it's not a mean God to do that. The world tells you that it's mean, but you've got to understand how many times have that, has that happened where intimacy has been given to multiple partners and shame comes about because of that. And then with each partner that someone's with, they give a little bit of more of themselves to that person. And after time, after time, after time, after time, when you finally meet the one that you're to marry, you're a fraction of yourself because you've mingled your soul with multiple partners. You see, God's design is not burdensome. God's design breathes life. Like imagine going to your spouse on the day of your wedding and you've, you've lived inside of God's design and you've, you've said, I'm gonna wait till I get married. And then on that day when you're finally married and you're united, you go back to recreating what Genesis says when man and woman were created it says that they were there and they were naked and they were not ashamed. You see, living inside of God's design removes all shame. Isn't that amazing? But we've got to know his design and we've got to desire his design because when we do, we live it out and it is glorious. Thirdly, I'll move quickly. 
He says, if you've been born of God, you have overcome the world. Look at me in verse four. He says, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? You wanna overcome, you wanna see victory in your life? Guess where it's gonna come from? It's not coming from you, but it's coming from your trust, your faith again in Jesus. Do you see that? The victory has overcome the world. It comes from our faith, our trust. And we see this, those that believe Jesus is the son of God. When we do the hard work of knowing God's truth and loving others and obeying God's commands, it doesn't mean that we're the ones getting the victory. It means God is the one that is working to help us overcome the world. Have you ever sat for a moment and thought about how much influence of the world or temptation to give in surrounds you? I love how Ray Stedman has put this. He talks about the, the picture of the pressure. He says, think of the temptation to cheat, to lie, to get ahead at all costs, to be dishonest, to overreach, not only in filing out your own income taxes, but to every aspect of business. It takes power to be honest in business, to be surrounded by low moral standards, to be under constant temptation, to take advantage of people, to resist the temptation, to take power. The world pressures us towards sexual looseness, Pressure to feed and feed the fire and satisfy the urge to give in, to give up. The pressure around us is tremendous and they seem overwhelming at times. There is pressure to harbor wrong ideas, to react to others in the way that the world reacts, to fight back, to strike back. The pressure to give in to pride, selfishness and resentment. Brothers and sisters, we are constantly under attack. Do you feel the pressure? Do you constantly feel that temptation? Do you constantly feel like it's easier to go the easy path than to step up for what is right? But John here simply says, it is by faith, by faith in the life of Jesus gives us the victory. It's trusting in him that we become victorious, that we can overcome the pressures of the world. Recently, I was talking with one of my daughters and she reminded me of the account in uh, Exodus chapter 17 in the Old Testament where God, uh, uh, Moses is leading God's people and they're, they're on their way on the, on the journey uh, that God is leading them. And God leads them through a valley, a valley that is very dry. And God's people are, are dying of thirst and, and they're looking to, to God and they're looking to Moses for leadership and they're saying, what's going on? And then the Amalekites show up. And so God's people are in a desperate place. And then this warring nation that hates them is coming against them, wanting to wage war against them. And so they begin to attack God's people. And what Moses does is he goes on top of the mountain. He goes on top of the hill overlooking the valley. What the Bible tells us that Moses does is he realizes the desperateness of the situation. So Moses takes his staff and he holds it up in the air. And by doing that, he's, he's relinquishing control. He's saying, God, I'm in a situation. Your people are in a situation that we have no power to overcome. 
And so what begins to happen is Moses is raising that staff up in the air. He looks down and he sees God's people overcoming the Amalekites. And he's like, yes, Lord, you're doing it. You're doing the victory. But then guess what happens to Moses? He gets tired. And as he begins to tire, that staff comes down. And he looks down at God's people and he sees that the Amalekites begin, are winning again in the battle. And his people are being defeated. And so it says what happens is, is there are two, Aaron and Hur, they come to Moses and they, they hold his hands up in the air. They sit him down on a rock and they hold his hands up in the air. And while he's showing this absolute dependence upon God, God steps in and he is victorious in that battle. I don't know what, what area of life you're struggling with right now. I don't know where you need a victory to come from. But I know you will never overcome it if you're trying to do it yourself. Like let today be the day where you raise your hand in absolute surrender and saying, Jesus, I can't do this. And I love the illustration. Or actually what happened with Moses is that Moses, even in his own weakness, knew that he couldn't do it. So what did he do? He surrounded him with supporters that were speaking truth into his life. Not saying, Moses, you got this. Not saying, Moses, you got this. No, they're saying, we, together, we're gonna trust in God. We're gonna come together and we're gonna put all of our faith and trust in God. We're not picking up a sword. We're not picking up a shield. We're not picking up a spear. We're putting it down and we're lifting our hands. And that's when we see the victory. You want to overcome the world? Let go. Quit trying to fix it. Quit trying to control everything in your life, but give it all to God. Do you need victory today? Do you need victory over an addiction? Do you need victory over resentment? Do you need victory over past hurt? Are you an angry person? Do you are you at odds with a brother or sister in Christ? Is there jealousy in your life? Then come to the Lord and surrender it to him and see the victory that he'll give you to overcome the world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words of truth. Father, we know that you are good and we know that you promise victory. Victory, in, first of all, in salvation. For Father, to be a child of God begins at the place of surrender. Where we give up our past and we come to Jesus and repent of our sins and ask for forgiveness. And what a promise that you've given us that we become a child of God at that moment. But also God, today we are reminded that victory does not belong in us. But the victory doesn't come from us. It comes from you who lives in us. The Father, at the end of the day, all of our attention and all of our affection should be on you. So Father, today I pray that whatever areas of our lives that we are struggling, that we would lay them at your feet and that we would see you be victorious. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.